We should all embrace the fact that we have minds mysterious, multifaceted, and inexplicable. Hello, and welcome to The Common Room, a series of conversations between members of the Yale English Department. I'm Steph Newell. Today, we are talking to Faisal Mohammed, who is Professor of English here at Yale. Faisal's academic work has won a number of prizes. His book, Milton and the Post-Secular Present, won a prize from the Milton Society of America, as did the book he co-edited with Mary Nyquist on Milton and questions of history. Faisal's writing has appeared in many different newspapers, magazines, and online media platforms, including the New York Times, the Yale Review, and Huffington Post, among others. His most recent scholarly book, called Sovereignty, was published by Oxford University Press in 2020, and he's currently working on a project about tyrannicide. We'll be talking to him about that and more in today's podcast. Faisal, welcome to The Common Room. Thank you, Steph. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Could you tell me a bit about your background? I'm going to give an irrationally cranky response to that completely innocuous question. You know, in this context, it's perfectly natural for us to open with that kind of question. Tell me how you got to here from wherever you began. But when I'm out in the world, a lot of times people will ask me that. I'll say what I do for a living. You know, I study Milton and his contemporaries. I'm a professor of English and they'll look slightly confused and they'll say, you know, how is it that you came to that? And oftentimes under the surface, I feel as though what they're really saying is, how is someone with your identity formation a scholar of 17th century British poetry? That isn't what I'd expect. Isn't your type supposed to be an engineer or something? And to be honest, I don't have a great explanation for why it is that I study what I study, other than the fact that I find it interesting and I enjoy it. To my mind, I don't see how it is that everyone else doesn't study what I study because it's endlessly fascinating. So I feel I'm being asked to perform some sort of confirmation of a person's preconceived ideas. You know, reconcile this anomaly for me is often what a person seems to be asking. And more and more now, I find I'm, I'm just reluctant to do it. I think that many of us need to carry around the assumption that we cannot be contained by demography. We should all embrace the fact that we have minds mysterious, multifaceted, and inexplicable. Now, having said all that, I do recognize that I may be drawn to Milton because he's a world-class contrarian. And also someone who very sort of fiercely defends his own intellectual freedom. So those may be under the surface of, of the draw. Can you tell me about your current research and talk a bit about what is tyrannicide and how you came to be interested in it? It's a natural interest for someone who studies Milton, of course, because Milton himself wrote a famous contribution to the tyrannicide tradition, tyrannicide being the idea that tyrants ought to be killed. And Milton was the first English thinker to defend that principle in print two weeks after the execution of King Charles I in, in 1649. The first, in fact, trial and execution of a head of state. So several years ago, I wrote a contribution to the New York Times series, The Stone, after it was clear that Bashar al-Assad was using poison gas in Syria. And I thought, well, you know, here's a moment where perhaps we could reevaluate the tyrannicide tradition and its relevance today. What do we do? What obligations do we have when a world leader is gassing his own people to death? And so I wrote that up for the stone, and the reader response was absolute horror. 
the sort of common perception was, this is simply murder. And, you know, everything that we should hold as civilized people should be opposed to this kind of act of premeditated murder. But the entire humanist tradition runs in the opposite direction. And in fact, tells us over and over again that tyrants deserve to be killed. As I've been sort of reading and considering this more deeply, there's always also caution amongst the ancients on the question of tyrannicide. One of the commonplaces that works its way into you know, writer after writer is that the tyrant crops the tallest ears in the cornfield. And what that means is that it's the nature of tyranny not only to put a corrupt person at the top, but for that corrupt person to surround himself with equally corrupt people and also to try to get rid of anyone who holds the least bit of public spirit or ability, right? You've got to wipe those people out because the tyrant conceives them as a threat. And so tyranny not only has the sort of corrupt person at the top, but that corruption spreads throughout civil society and, and all of our political institutions. So the anxiety is you get rid of the tyrant and there's going to be potentially a worse one right there behind him. Or the people who are in the best position to do away with the tyrant, usually prominent political individuals themselves, are also just as corrupt, if not more so, than the person at the top. There's a story that Aristotle gives us in the politics, and this has a literary dimension, which maybe people will be interested in. And that is the poet Euripides spent his final years in the court of King Archelaus. And one day, another member of court made fun of Euripides' bad breath. And so Archelaus allowed Euripides to give that person a good flogging in front of everybody. And that person then was so seething with resentment that when there was rebellion brewing against Archelaus, he was first to join and became one of the most powerful generals, ultimately bringing the king's reign to an end. Why does Aristotle tell us this story? I think it's to give us a glimpse into what it looks like at the top of a tyranny. These people who oppose a tyrant may not necessarily be motivated by public spirit at all, right? They're just as small and self-interested as the tyrant himself. And so there's always this anxiety in the tyrannicide tradition. You can do away with the tyrant. What's the new political order coming in behind it? And it's one of, I think, the really sort of fascinating complexities of studying this stuff. Now, do you have a favorite piece or pieces of music? You know, the holy trinity of genres on my playlist are jazz, classic rock, and hip-hop. I mean, that's, you know, 98% of the time what I'm listening to. The Public Enemy album, Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back, was so unlike any hip-hop that I'd heard before. The way that Public Enemy harnessed the energies of the black radical tradition hit my late high school self like a revelation. And the fact that you could get a high school kid in Edmonton, Alberta to feel really invested in the black radical tradition is a powerful thing. That fascination with the black radical tradition is something that really persists for me. And if I, if I go back in my thought to where it all began, it, it began with Public Enemy's Nation of Millions. 
You know, this will tell you sort of how edgy a youth I was. I signed it out on vinyl from the local public library. There must have been like no record stores in Edmonton that had Nation of Millions on the shelf, but the public library did for some reason. And everything from the cover to, I remember the liner notes with the pictures of the S1Ws and their berets and camouflage. It just, what is this? Every bit of it felt like a radical act. Louder Than a Bomb is maybe the track that captures that spirit. There's probably no album that's had a greater effect on me personally than that one. Well, thank you, Faisal. And thank you for listening to The Common Room. Our producer is Robert Scaramuccia, class of 19, and our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. You also heard Public Enemy, Louder Than a Bomb. 